people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. I'm Alex, and I am the usual host of the show. I'm sure you've noticed, but we've been on a bit of a hiatus. We're back now with some brand new interviews. Just a quick word, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. You'll help us keep going, paying server fees and various costs associated with the show. Um, You get access to, to the interviews a couple of days early, and you'll also have a warm, fuzzy feeling at having supported independent anti-fascist media. Our discussion today is based on a book called Anti-Fascism, Sports, Sobriety, Forking a Working Class Culture, um, edited and translated by Gabriel Kuhn. You can buy the book um, from PM Press, or you can borrow it like I did from the Internet Archive for an hour at a time and read the PDF that way. Um, You can also probably illicitly download it from various websites as well, um, which is also an option. Um, having said that, let's get on with the show. Today I'm joined by writer and anti-fascist activist Solan. How are you, Solan? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So, what well, our discussion is based on the writings today is going to be based on the writings of a Austrian interwar Marxist called Julius Deutsch, who wrote a lot about um, about, about about these topics. And obviously, anti-fascism was a particularly kind of you know pertinent issue at the time. You know, we're living through the rise of of not only the National Socialists, but like monarchists and because I guess a wave of reaction within Europe generally. You can see it in like Romania, in Italy. This was like a very kind of, I would probably say this was the issue of the time, um, this reactionary threat. Um, so who was Julius Deutsch and you know what did he say about, about, these, about these topics? Yeah, I think to, before getting really into like the biographical details of Deutsch, I think it's worth just staying with that historical context that you alluded to um, just for a moment, because um, it'll help kind of contextualize a little bit uh, some of the broader um, issues that we'll talk about later, but to maybe say something about the very particular situation of the um, what was called the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Austria, which is the, the party that Julius Deutsch was a member of. Um, so... Austria, what we know as Austria now, uh, and what indeed became the Republic of Austria uh, after World War One, was basically the German-speaking parts of um, what had been, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had been a, a huge state uh, in in Eastern and Central Europe, uh, encompassing many, many, many different uh, ethnic groups, language groups, religious groups. Um, a lot of different forms of life and a lot of different ways of making a living. So the um, the Austrian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which to kind of keep it short, uh, I'll be referring to as the Austro-Marxists, which is sort of the name of this movement and school of thought, um, they were in a situation where they built their politics around kind of forging alliances or between different groups of interest, so not just workers in the larger cities, but also um, peasants, uh, smaller craftsmen uh, out in the provinces, uh, trying to build a kind of, I guess what we call today, like a multicultural or multilinguistic language 
multicultural and multilinguistic movement of poor and working people across a really huge area, speaking loads of different languages. So a big part of what they were uh, concerned with relatively early on uh, is this question of culture and how people relate to each other, how people live alongside each other, and how to build new social bonds amongst each other in a socialist way, in a socialist way that's kind of strong enough to um, resist reaction, but also kind of create a new space for politics amid all these different cultural and linguistic identities as well. Um, and the kind of sports movement uh, that Julius Deutsch was active in and a big advocate for was part of this broader culture of a workers' movement that really sought to be, you know, almost like a, a religion, a whole world that you could live in, basically. Um, so sports was part of that. Uh, and the Austro-Marxists are kind of known amongst people that are very into studying Marxism, they're kind of known as, as I guess, part of a, a group of Marxists from around this time, alongside Antonio Gramsci uh, in Italy, or someone like Maria Teghi in South America, who were beginning to pay closer attention to questions about culture um, and kind of difference. So that's kind of an important part of the theoretical backdrop for Julius Deutsch's writings as well. Although, of course, then after the end of World War I, um, this, the Austrian Republic, I mean, the empire breaks up and the Austrian Republic is left with kind of Vienna as this massive city, um, and uh, which was very, again, very multicultural, very proletarian in character. And then this kind of hinterland of um, more agricultural areas, German-speaking agricultural areas of the empire. So you had a capital city that was kind of completely out of proportion to the, the countryside around it, with quite a lot of political tensions as a result. So um, Vienna was very red, in the sense it was very proletarian, very strongly organized um, with unions and socialist parties, and later also communist party. Um, but the country as a whole was not necessarily on the same page. Uh, so this, this is kind of the one thing that's particular about Julius Deutsch's political context that I think is worth mentioning is this attentiveness to kind of difference. The other thing is that the, um, the Austro-Marxist movement, the workers' movement in Austria after the October Revolution did not really split in the same way that many similar parties did around Europe. Um, there was an Austrian Communist Party, but it remained very, very small. Um, and uh, at least in the interwar years, not particularly politically significant. So the party that Deutsch was a member of included both quite radical revolutionaries and quite moderate, what we today think of as like social democrats. Um, these two kind of wings of the workers' movement didn't split in Austria in the same way that they did in many other countries. Um, and that's also significant, partially because of the debates within the party, but also some of the kind of contradictions that arose as well. Um, but again, so this is a political environment where the kind of 
negotiation of differences, whether they're political differences, uh, different political outlooks within the party, or whether it's the kind of different uh, cultural and social backgrounds of the members of the party and the members of the movement more generally is kind of built into the way that they did politics. Um, Julius Deutsch was quite a prominent member uh, of the party and was from quite a young age. He um, he first kind of uh, got involved in... Uh, 1898, uh, when he went to the chairman of this party, the SDAP, um, and uh, asked to whether he would support the formation of a football team at the workers' club that Julius Deutsch was a member of. So he got involved quite young and got involved with the sports aspect of it quite young as well. He would later go on to be a member of parliament, um, and he would be very active in organizing the workers' sports movement and as well as the workers' self-defense militias that began to be organized uh, in the early 1920s in the kind of very unstable situation after the First World War. Um, he would... Uh, the, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, the, the Republican Schutzbund, which he was the leader of, was these kind of, like you say, kind of self-defense anti-fascist... Defense in, I suppose it was pictured as like a defense of Republican, a re- defense of Republican values so against fascism, against monarchism. Um, uh, and I, I guess I was particularly interested because obviously the idea of setting up a like essentially a paramilitary organization connected to a political party, for one thing, it's completely illegal uh, in the UK nowadays. It was banned in the 1930s. But also, it just doesn't make any sense to us really uh, in our particular, you know, you know, in the particular situation we find ourselves in. And so this kind of Republican Schutzbund has an interesting, I think has a really interesting place within the kind of political life of, of interwar Austria, firstly, but also, you know, within the kind of, within the writings in which he is like making, like one of the texts that we're discussing today is, is based, you know, like discusses the role of a militiaman within the Schutzbund, you know, what what is the role of a, of a of a militia member within, you know, within these units. Um, so I wondered if you could speak a bit more about you know this kind of idea of paramilitarism, and you know how did it, how did the Schutzmann, what role did the Schutzmann play within, within the events of interwar of interwar Austria? Right. Um, well, I guess yeah, like you say, it is something that sounds if we kind of extrapolated onto. Uh, Western Europe today, it sounds, or I suppose Central Europe today too, for, the, for that matter, but in our present political context, it does sound like quite like a lot, um, but it was a fairly widespread um, at the time. Um, of course, the, the First World War had just ended, and so there was a, a huge amount of uh, people with you know, with military experience um, and all the kind of traumas and needs that come with that. Um, So there was already quite a lot of, uh, and, you know, people had already been through quite a few years of intense um, militarism. And there were also quite a lot of right-wing 
um, conservative, but also kind of an incipient kind of far right fascist and fascist movement uh, in the wake of World War One as well in many European countries that was often also organized in a paramilitary fashion. Uh, of course, there's you know maybe the listeners might be maybe more more familiar with with some of the events in Germany in the aftermath of World War One as well, where there was a similar dynamic of. Uh, different political parties and different uh, political movements setting up their own paramilitary organizations uh, in the wake of the war. So it was that in and of itself was not super unusual um, in the context of interwar Europe. Um, what's uh, what is perhaps like a little particular about Julius Deutsch, and we can maybe get a little more into that or. Uh, later on as we're in the discussion, but he makes uh, in this text uh, certainly quite a strong case for um, the militarization of these self-defense units. He's careful to draw this distinction between adopting military style tactics or uniforms or customs um, and militarism, which he sees as a bourgeois ideological formation that kind of uh, imposes itself on people by force. And instead, he argues that, you know, we can we can march, we can wear uniforms, we can have uh, hierarchical uh, sort of arrangements of command and obedience. It doesn't mean that we're doing what the state does. We are engaged in a different kind of project because um, our militias are about worker self-defense and ultimately about the freedom of working people. So there are, are they have a spirit of kind of self-organization and uh, collective self-discipline, even, even if uh, kind of externally we might be adopting military looking tactics. Um, so for Deutsch, he really saw these units not only as a way to kind of defend, uh, say, maybe meetings by the party or picket lines uh, in cases of industrial conflict where the workers' movement might come under attack by right-wing paramilitaries, not only this kind of practical aspect, he also very much sees it as part of this broader project of building a socialist culture um, that, that I mentioned at the outset, like that the paramilitary organizations were a way to for the working class to project its power outwards, to appreciate its own power, to develop new skills, to become the kind of people that are capable of defending themselves and overthrowing capitalism and uh, creating a new society. So these two impulses are both very much there uh, in Deutsch's work uh, and in his writing as well, that there's uh, the question of kind of military effectiveness and there's the question of how is this activity helping to transform us into a new kind of people yeah interesting it is interesting how he he sees kind of military tactics or the or the like kind of the pomp and circumstance of a military style parade as as kind of like an almost neutral a neutral thing like um he says well the fascists do this and the fascists get a lot of people very kind of engrossed in their marches and engrossed in their presentation. And why aren't the left doing it as well? And I think the le us today, we reject kind of, I guess, more military kind of 
style of trapping? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, if we kind of pose the question in, in, in um, very, the broadest possible terms, I think there's a lot in, in this text and in the text on sport as well, that really speaks to that question of the relationship between means and ends. Um, because Deutsch does indeed go a long way in saying that like the kind of, the means here are relatively neutral. Um, but if we, and you know, we can, we can take these tactics and we can apply them in a emancipatory direction in a revolutionary direction instead. I think, and that's somewhere where, um, I think it cuts to the chase of a couple of real problems with Deutsch as well. And I think, uh, just for a little more, uh, context as well, that the text we're discussing here in this anthology called Anti-Fascism Sports Sobriety, Forging a Militant Working Class Culture, uh, which is edited and translated by Gabriel Kuhn. Uh, and there's an introduction, um, in the introduction, Kuhn writes a lot about kind of the historical context for Deutsch's writings. And it's interesting to note that, for example, this argument about um, militarization, Kuhn kind of takes it as a given that that's the most effective way. No, not Kuhn, sorry. Deutsch. I think Kuhn has thoughts on the matter himself. But um, Deutsch takes it as a given that militarization is the most effective way of organizing physical resistance to fascism. Um, and that the critics, the people who oppose that kind of militarization, who maybe say, well, hey, it's not for us as socialists, as workers, to kind of mimic the tactics of, of the people we are we're fighting, um, is almost like a like an ideological argument or like what we today call like purity politics or whatnot. This, to me, is kind of how Deutsch waves away that argument. But in fact... Um, in the introduction, Gabriel Kuhn points out that, for example, um, a contemporaries of uh, a contemporary of Deutsch called uh, Theodor Kerner, who was in fact a general in the uh, Austro-Hungarian army during the war, also active in the Schutzbund in these defense units, was opposed to strict militarization on kind of tactical, strategic grounds. He argued that, look, there's no way we're going to ever like beat the state in a kind of conventional warfare type of setup. Like that's just not realistic for us. Um, and Kerner argued for a more kind of guerrilla style approach. Um, so there's kind of military arguments for why that militarized like kind of strictly tactical arguments about it. Um, it's also worth mentioning that uh, after uh, well, after the takeover of Aust the Austrian Republic by the fascist movement, um, Julius Deutsch w went into exile and ended up eventually as an officer in the Spanish Republican uh, army, in the army of the Spanish Republic, where he again also argued for militarization of the conflict um, and the militarization of the Republican armed forces in the Spanish Civil War is in the historiography, in the history writing of about that war is quite contentious also amongst military historians for the same reason that actually as working class people fighting the state, um, the move to try and kind of replicate uh, or mirror the tactics of the state is not strategically that's, that 
smart necessarily. It didn't go very well in Spain either, and it didn't go very well in Austria. Um, so I think it's if Deutsch is maybe a little bit too quick there in kind of dismissing the tension between the means and ends. Um, in my view, because in the end, also this there's a case to be made where the these Schutzbund units uh, did not prevent the rise of fascism in Austria. They were not in the end particularly effective. The party hierarchy held them back uh, for many for for many important confrontations between the organized workers and the fascists and the state um, until the point when armed conflict became more or less inevitable and then the response was initially quite uncoordinated. There was a real reluctance to kind of risk these wonderful structures that had been built up in in practice. So I think there's also something there that the of the argument that the militarization decreased uh, or hampered um, trained and organized working people to defend themselves and their communities uh, by kind of absorbing that into these military style structures. Yeah, and, and I should have said this at the start, but and I'll, I'll plug it at the end, but this this anthology we're talking, we're, we're basing our discussion of um, by Gabriel, edited by Gabriel Kuhn, and translated actually. Um, it's a really great read and you can actually pit it, pick it up on on the internet archive, you can borrow it for an hour at a time, which is how I research the episode, but also you can buy it from PM Press. Um, you know, I'll plug that at the end too. The second the second uh, you know, pamphlet we're talking about, because these these texts are essentially propaganda. They're trying to persuade people. Um, I suppose with within the movement, um, they're pamphlets, they're you know, making a, a very clear point. You you don't go away from these texts like Thinking, oh, what was he actually talking about in the end? Um, this, I mean, well, anyway, the second one is about building a, a working class, what he calls a proletarian sports culture, and obviously Deutsch was the was the, as you said before was the head of the something like the Sports Socialist International, Socialist Sports International, and it's obviously something that was deeply important to him. How does Deutsch uh, distinguish between what he terms proletarian sports and bourgeois sports? Yeah, um, it's uh, like you're saying. He's he doesn't uh, what's the word? He doesn't put too fine a point on it. He's very uh, straightforward in his arguments, um, and I found I so he has a very like he he breaks on this distinction in quite clear terms where he says that bourgeois sports are about um, the individual chasing of records and the individual. Um, kind of athletic excellence, um, whereas proletarian sports is about uh, improving the health and strength of the people together. So a lot of this particular article um, is taken by kind of putting real distance uh, between these two conceptions of sports. So Deutsch is very critical of the commercialization of sports he's very critical of spectatorship in sports you know he really argues that um, sports is something that people should be doing not watching necessarily um, and um, also this kind of idea of sports as an opportunity to 
exercise in a way that I guess we'd call like holistic maybe now. Uh, you know, he he is quite both in the sense, both in a very precise sense that he says we are strictly against sports turning into the hypertrophy of singular muscles. Sports should develop all parts of the body harmoniously, you know, um, but also in a sort of slightly broader sense that the sports, proletarian sports, working class sports is a form of political education in and of itself. Um, that sports is an operative practicing sports or uh, working together in an athletic context is an opportunity to kind of build new relationships to each other, relate to each other differently, um, build one's confidence, and also maybe even experience socialist values in a very direct way uh, on the field. Um, and there's, a, again, a, 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 another Austrian social democrat, Hans Gustgeb, who is also active in the, work, in the worker sports movement, kind of summarizes this position as, for the worker athlete, mass sport and political education are one. Sport is not practiced for distraction, but as a necessary means to shape a proletariat that is mentally and physically prepared to overthrow capitalism and prevail against the reactionary forces in politics, economics, and culture. So for Deutsch, then sports, and for the movement more broadly at the time, sports is an opportunity to kind of prefigure the society of the future. In a sense, it was also an opportunity to transform one's kind of life world and experiences and in a very concrete way it was about you know becoming the kind of people that are capable of overthrowing capitalism as well so it's sort of it was very much a um it was a very integral part of this broader cultural movement um that we spoke about at the outset you've also got really interesting takes on the idea of like i suppose elite sports as well and setting records and he talks about how in bourgeois sports, it's like always about chasing the record, always about celebrating the kind of singular individuals who are like uniquely, you know, kinetically and, you know, materially gifted um, in order to break these amazing records. And, he, you know, there's a really interesting bit where he talks about boxing as well and how, you know, so much money goes in these fights. These boxers are... Um, everyone tunes in to watch these two singular figures battle it out in some kind of like almost Nietzschean struggle. Um, yeah, I just thought it was super interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, <clears throat> I think that it's really, I, I find it really interesting how attentive he is to, this is again that kind of like cultural thinking because he, he starts the text by kind of pointing out that look, these bourgeois sports associations and bourgeois sports presents itself as kind of as neutral, but it's very much also inculcating values of national nationalism or national chauvinism and this kind of very individualistic, egotistical kind of performances that, you know, um, for Deutsch uh, are kind of representative of a capitalist society, that there's kind of the, the values of capitalist society are mirrored in the sports uh, and the that it produces, um, which makes it a kind of battleground. And there, indeed, he writes that that this kind of uh, dynamic of spectatorship, um, in particular, 
And in particular, this is where he talks about, about, about boxing as well, that he writes that the raw and the more dangerous the sport, the bigger the attraction. Boxing matches trump all others. Um, he goes on to describe a fight between two boxers called Tony and Dempsey in Chicago for the world title uh, with an audience of 160,000 people. Um, and I'm quoting again now. Uh, an audience of 160,000 people reacted like madmen to each swing and hook thrown by one of the opponents. The entire world followed the bloody spectacle in front of the radio. Some people got so excited they suffered a stroke. These sad consequences did not interfere with the event's success, however. Why would a few dead fans matter when everyone is marveling at the money earned by the boxing champions? And this doesn't include all the money that was made from advertisement, ticket sales, and bets. This was indeed a historic day for bourgeois sports. So I think, you know, he's he's kind of, um, I think that kind of condemnation of the uh, commercial and pacifying elements and also the exploitative the exploitative nature of that, of, you know, people destroying their bodies um, for profit and for entertainment um, is something that, from Deutsch's perspective, is completely inimical like, to um, the ideals of proletarian sports, which is about strength, comradeship, and a kind of collective experience. The image of, you know, 160,000 people listening to the radio, listening to two men beating each other up over the radio and getting so excited that they have strokes while, you know, capitalists walk off with, with a huge amount of profit is, you know, absolutely the stuff of nightmares for Deutsch, I think. Um, and just as an aside, I think there's, there's interesting things there to consider in terms of sports today and what kind of anti-fascist or uh, revolutionary practices of sports or athleticism could look like and mean in our present context. But I also think there's something very prescient in those passages about um, spectatorship and passivity and um, the exploitation of our spare time that kind of prefigures some of the cultural criticisms um, that we think of as more of like a post-war or even 1960s kind of phenomenon. Um, that's kind of prefigured a bit here. I think the image of the 160,000 people in front of the radio is a very vivid one. It's very like old timey sepia, but you know, there's some, I think there's a prescience there that Deutsch is recognizing like the kind of development of mass entertainment, which sports was a huge part of, but that was still in a kind of early stages um, here. And Deutsch is making a strong case for actually getting out together spending time together, touching grass, as we'd say now, instead of hanging out in front of the radio, listening to two people punch each other. Yeah, that, that gets onto the questions of, of how we apply a lesson today. And I just wanted to, before we get onto that, which I think is an important part of this episode, um, he's, the, third, the third pamphlet, the third essay in the book is possibly my most favourite, um, just because of how strident it is. Um, it's called Discipline and Alcohol. And we, you know, it's funny that we were discussing this episode when we were initially planning it out, we were discussing it over a pint, but Deutsch is incredibly into, it was, it was a member of the temperance movement, a socialist temperance movement, and in in this in this text he kind of, you know, very declaratively says, you know, you can't have party discipline or organisational discipline with alcohol, and you can't have alcohol with organisational or party uh, discipline. You can't have one without the other. And he takes a, a, a real 
hard line on this on this on the question of drinking within the within the workers movement um you know where where do you think this comes from and what 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 does he kind of say about alcohol why does he make how does he make this case well in terms of where it comes from there's there's a couple of things to to mention i mean one is on a purely kind of uh, autobiographical note that uh, Julius Deutsch uh, was in fact the child of an innkeeper and he grew up um, kind of very much immersed in a proletarian drinking culture. Um, there's a, there's a, a, an experience from his early life that uh, Gabriel Kuhn uh, includes in the introduction that as a child in the tavern he'd seen uh, a young peasant guy stabbed in a drunken fight and uh, in in his own memoirs Deutsch kind of writes that this this experience really instilled in him a lifelong aversion for alcohol um, so that's kind of on a, on a personal level um, there's that but I think it's important to point out that that kind of experience wouldn't have been you know, to- completely uncommon um, at the time, or indeed in many cases uh, nowadays as well, that this kind of drunkenness and the violence that comes with it was very much a feature of the the way of life of working in poor people. Um, and for, for Deutsch, this kind of... Uh, so, I mean, part of that then... From that, it kind of follows that actually sobriety movements were also quite a widespread feature of workers' movements in uh, many parts of the world and in Europe as well, because kind of overcoming this problem of drink um, and addiction uh, was uh, incredibly important. I mean, there was a sense of there is a sense of reclaiming one's dignity as working people, this idea that, you know, the socialist workers' movements kind of offered working people that, you know, we are the future, we're going to build a new world um, and leave this one behind. Whereas uh, in the present, we're being reduced to these beasts of burden, you know, we're being treated like animals, where we are, you know, made to work until we die. And with the few moments that we have, the same people that exploit our work sell us you know, this poisonous shit that kills us faster, you know, there was, so there was a real, there was a real broad culture of sobriety and a rejection of alcohol in the workers' movement. Um, At the same time, alongside this, there was also a kind of slightly more paternalistic angle as well. A lot of the people, many people who got involved in the workers' movement as intellectuals, um, you know, maybe coming from more middle-class backgrounds with sort of social reformer kind of instincts as well, that kind of like, we're here to bring culture to the workers. They could be sincere socialists, but they did see also a particular role for themselves as a, almost like missionaries of socialism, almost with a kind of civilizing mission. So these two kind of impulses of like, on the one hand, this working class pride of like, we're better than that and we're not going to fall for the boss's poison, but also a slightly paternalistic sense of like, we should really sober these people up a little bit, you know, this isn't good for them. So these these two impulses exist at the same time and kind of, yeah, coexist within the, the temperance movements of 
the workers' movement, the socialist movement, and various religiously oriented ones as well. Um, in Gabriel Quinn's introduction, he points out that this hasn't really like lasted. Like these kind of mass temperance organizations don't really exist um, anymore in most countries. Um, I think he mentions that the Sweden still has a kind of workers oriented temperance organization, but that's become very rare since then. Um, so again, this Deutsch's initial commitment to, to, to sobriety comes out of this, this broader kind of cultural landscape. And I think in the text itself, we see elements of both of those impulses, both the kind of working class pride and the kind of the ferocity that, that he brings to that question, and also maybe a little bit of a paternalistic concern as well. Yeah, there's, there's also the thing about, I mean, the thing about reclaiming time, I think is really important as well. And it's it's what he says a lot, he relates that back to the sports, in the sports essay as well. He talks about how, you know, the only reason that there is a possibility of a sports culture, a working class sports culture, is because peop, um, workers fought for an eight hour day. They were not, no longer wearing tw working 12 hour days. And so they had the time and more importantly, the, the actual mental and physical energy of just having that extra rest built into your into your working life, into your general everyday life, um, to be able to go out and get out into nature and go on hikes and go to museums and 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 participate in like team and cooperative sporting activities as well and so it's it's interesting how he kind of melds up these you know, kind of very base material economic aspects which are very familiar to the left you know working conditions and so forth with this kind of more cultural cultural building aspect as well yeah, exactly. I mean, I think he he sees um, both the sports movement and the improve. He sees the improving physical health of working people as a direct victory for the movement. Um, in a very kind of straightforward way, which which I think there's a, I really appreciate the clarity of the statement. Uh, but also, I mean, there's maybe some stuff that we can unpack a bit later about like what is health and, and maybe some more critical perspective on those questions that uh, contemporary uh, comrades might might want to raise but but exactly I think he it's this it's there's a through line here um, in all of the essays I think that is about shaping a life which is somehow healthy strong self-disciplined uh and a participant in the movement for um working class freedom and self-determination that is kind of always contrasted or is kind of contrasted with the kind of person that a worker is expected to be by their bosses which is somebody who will be productive but not take too much initiative, be a little bit dull, but, you know, show up to work on time, more or less, um, and be docile, uh, subservient, and kind of uh, pacified by either, you know, by alcohol or by mass entertainment um, in some kind of way. So there's, I think, taking the three pieces together that there is a really strong through line there about there's quite a strong case for what kind of life a person ought to live uh, and it's one that is very material it's very much rooted in the body and in you know um, 
how you spend your time. Um, and like you're saying, he very much sees like the, the, his, his present moment as a real opportunity because we've, we as working people at the time had more time on our hands than we'd had previously. Um, and we needed to make the most of it, uh, to make our lives count both on a kind of personal level, but also for the movement. Um, yeah, so there's, again, there, for me, there is also a kind of, when I, when I was reading it, which, uh, you know, I'm kind of more familiar with the kind of like 1960s kind of cultural criticism stuff, which tends to be, uh, I mean, not to overgeneralize it too much, but it tends to be formulated. It's has a similar focus, which is about like, what kind of life do we, should we be living? Should we aim to live under capitalism so that we can get free? And how could we kind of reject the role that capitalism tries to put us into? But certainly in the, at least in like the Sparknotes version of the 1960s cultural criticism, it tends to be more about setting your desires free and uh, breaking out of this kind of imposed conformity of mass society. Um, whereas what Deutsch advocates in these essays is to engage in a form of collective discipline, uh, collectively driven self-discipline and kind of a, a self-improvement um, along with others. So I think there's a really interesting kind of similarities and contrast there in terms of how, how uh, radical writers have approached the question of like, how do we live under capitalism? The question of discipline is a, is a one that's kind of woven throughout the text. You know, you can see it in the first one when he talks about kind of the proper role of a militia or a military, a people's, like not people's militia, a militia member. Um, you know, the first point in these five points that he has of of good, and in, indeed that that's what's printed printed on the Republican Schutzman's membership cards is the first one is punctuality. You know, punctuality. You must be on time for every action, for every meeting, um, which is something probably the the, the left today um, could could take note of. You know, punctuality. Um, so I, it's it's um, I wondered how you know how. What lessons can we draw from this? Because he does seem to be writing for a particular time, obviously. He's writing in, in his very immediate situation. He's trying to persuade people of his position. And he's also deeply embroiled in the, in the, you know, in the, in the happenings of the day. You know, you speak, spoke earlier as well of how the, the Schutzbund didn't intervene in a particular situation. And he defends that decision. Um, I think, you know, with the hindsight of history, it's a, it's a, it's a, it doesn't, it doesn't stand up. Um, but he's still, you know, he's still there. He's still present in the moment. So, you know, what what do you what what do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's. Uh, I mean, I've been reading this text on and off for many years now, amongst other things, because I am really, I'm really curious about how some of this stuff holds up, um, because. The language of it and the framings and the concepts that he uses feel, to me at least, really, uh, well, different from what I'm used to reading, basically, different to how I'm used to thinking about it. And um, at the same time, we think about, okay, but there was a different historical context. But then I'm not really satisfied with the idea of like, oh, well, I don't know, he was a man of his time or what have you. And I think... Uh, 
I think uh, Gabriel Kuhn puts it really well in his introduction that he says uh, to reference the context of a bygone era as an explanation for outdated ideas is as legitimate as it is meaningless. So like if we say that, well, you know, the 1920s in Austria were just a different time. So the mistakes or the, the, not necessarily mistakes, but I guess any that any kind of points of disagreements or things that feel uncomfortable about this text or uh, feel wrong about it, we can just chalk it up to it being in the past. And I think actually, um, I think Julius Deutsch meant what he wrote, you know? I don't think it's a case of, oh, if only he'd had the chance to read, like, I don't know, Raoul von Eichem or whatever, or if only somebody had sat him down and talked him through disability activism uh, in the present, maybe he were, or, you know, I mean, feminism. It's not that the text is like misogynist or anything, but there's nothing about gender here at all. Um, you know, that maybe, and there is something quite, I don't know, uh, there's something that can easily be read at least as quite masculinist in in the, the kind of this cultivation of like order, discipline, strength. Well, there's, um, there's something so, also quite, you know, there's something quite fascist about it as well. Like, not not to yeah. say that he is, but like, you know, this idea of forging a new man, creating a new new yeah, creating a new man for a new time, physical strength, the valorization of of, of action and activities, also like, yeah. you know, yeah. very thematically fascist. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with the caveat that to, to a certain extent, like fascist movements in the early 20th century, to an extent, kind of modeled themselves off workers' movements. It was kind of like a workers' movement for the middle class. So who came up with this stuff is a little bit, you know, is disputable. But but absolutely, I think there's something, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's one uh, line here in Deutsch that really struck with me where um, he writes that... Uh, Practicing sports means to overcome inner and outer obstacles. It is the victory of the will over the idleness innate to man. You know what I mean? Like there's something, there's like a whole, there's a whole philosophy baked into those couple of lines, you know, about what it is to be a human and what it, what a human ought to be. Uh, that, you know, I mean, the victory of the will, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, this is very much the kind of language that we do associate with fascism uh, much more than we do with with uh, with socialism or Marxism or anarchism in the present. So I think that that kind of project of trying to, on the one hand, read these texts on their own terms, so to try and understand the context, but also to to not read them in this kind of patronizing way that we sometimes do when we read older historical writing. That we're like, oh, whatever's weird about this is just down to them you know, not being that on it with certain things, but to actually accept the idea, to kind of engage with the ideas here as they actually stand. And then to kind of try and think, okay, where are they actually kind of directly wrong and where are they pointing to something that that is important, but that we've maybe lost in the way that we think about anti-fascism or the revolutionary potential sports or even what it means to live a meaningful life. You know what I mean? Like, there's some stuff on the militarism and the militarization, rather, um, where I think you one could make like a historical case that that was a mistake, for example. That seems pretty clear cut. But, uh, but the question of like, is it the case that sports is a way to overcome the idleness innate 
in man? Are we engaged in a, you know, in a struggle between our will and the kind of inherent inertia uh, of human being? These are questions that I think are, are much broader and also, but again, worth engaging with. Absolutely. Um, so this, this question of, of, of proletarian sports, just to go back to this, like we have, I suppose in, the, the, the argument he's making is one of, of making things accessible to, uh, making such activities accessible to a mass of people and not valorizing singular athletes or singular elite, you know, elite sports people, but people working together, strengthening themselves in whatever way that means. And um, I suppose we see the examples of this, you know, you, you can look at kind of fan owned and explicitly kind of left wing or, you know, community driven sports clubs like uh, Clapton CFC and all the battles that went around getting the ground and having like a, you know, like physical infrastructure that's there for working people. Um, all the way through to these like very occasionally red, red gyms and a network of red gyms is popping up. We've, we've discussed on the program before and other kinds of m more, you know, more generally like suppose trade union, cultural, um, hiking, this kind of thing is all, all kind of present today and happens in various ways and in various forms. And this, this idea of accessibility, I think, is a really important one and one that we've discussed in the context of Red Gyms. Like, you know, how do you make martial arts training or boxing or Muay Thai training available in, in an anti-fascist context open to people, open to everyone who wants to participate in it, whatever ability you have or whatever kind of, you know, physical, physical needs you have in order to engage you with that, whilst also developing very very important like skills in in self-defense and in in being able to to look after each other in on actions and in particular you know demonstrations as well um and it's one that's i don't think is it even really and we should acknowledge this it's not re even really resolvable necessarily this these two things are intention this need for accessibility and this need to develop skills as well so i just wondered what you what were your thoughts on that you know especially in the context of for example clapton yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a really good question because I think that's that for me um, is is really the key to this. Well, to these texts, but also I think like what the task of um, kind of radical sports in the present could be or is is precisely around that question of of access uh, and accessibility and to what extent people. Um, have autonomy in their own spare time kind of and to what extent the spare time that people do have is taken up by is you know just subject to further commercial exploitation of them as consumers uh in a way that's not particularly good for us um so i think that question of access to access to sports is really important um i think one thing that i'm really happy about uh the development of more red gyms and um, the victories that Clapton Community Football Club have had are incredibly impressive. Um, I mean, they've taken they've taken a whole football pitch uh, and a clubhouse into you know popular possession in East London in the two thousand and twenties. You know, we never wrestle like turf back from the capitalists. Like it's very rare in this town, uh, and it's it's been pulled off through the kind of prism of, of building a community football club so i think on the one hand we can see sports and uh 
as a kind of as a battleground, as a site of struggle, right? Um, that and that can include things like uh, entirely uh, independent and fan-owned um, structures or collectively owned structures like Clapton Community Football Club. But I think it also would include should include the struggles around keeping leisure centers open, uh, struggles around funding for youth activities of different forms as well. Um, and I think there's something there to kind of bear in mind that maybe uh, in addition to the kind of contradiction that you're pointing about, how is the how are the activities themselves made accessible uh, while at the same time we develop the skills that we concretely need? Like a second kind of problem is do we sort of separate ourselves off and build the most radical alternative we can? Or is it more important to engage with what already exists? Because uh, certainly red gyms can be incredibly important in uh, creating a site where people who are unfamiliar with martial arts and maybe don't see it as for them can come in and train amongst comrades. Uh, but there's also something to be said for working to make martial arts gyms in general more accessible uh, and friendlier places. Although it's been my my impression that they generally are comparatively inclusive a lot of the time. Um, in a similar way to that, you know, the amount of people in this country volunteering to make sure that kids can play football under safe and supportive conditions. There's an enormous amount of voluntary association uh, initiative, uh, mutual aid, you know, all these values that we really um, support and, and kind of seek to build our alternatives off the back of, a lot of that is being practiced in, in sports as a kind of aspect of popular life today as well. Um, yeah, so I think I, it... Yeah, I guess it's also like, there's, there's no, I think there's a good distinction to be made between like working to preserve sporting and and active like infrastructure like a leisure center like a swimming pool like um you know football pitches and tennis courts or whatever gyms and and distinguishing that that the activity of that saving that infrastructure with the question of control who controls it who who gets to use it and what use is it, is it put to like um saving for example swimming pool um if it's just used for you know, council, if it's just controlled by the council and and there's a certain fee to enter it and, you know, you have to pay eight pounds to go for a swim, for example. And if you, and only only kind of council classes are allowed, you can't be put to like, it can't be used, for example, by trade union branches or, you know, workers workers groups or, or whatever. It's just it's just there to be used as consumers. There's, that's a different, that's, a, that's an extra add-on to which Clapton has kind of, you know they've got the infrastructure, they saved the infrastructure, and they've also controlling it um, themselves as members, as workers, as fans. Um, and so there's an interesting question there between, you know, campaigns to save particular particular public infrastructure with, and then how do we control that infrastructure? To what use is it put? And you know who is who is in in charge of those decisions within within those spaces? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of hard, at least for me. It's 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 hard not to get a little nostalgic, uh, reading texts like these about kind of what workers' movements were capable of organizing. You know, a century odd ago, in terms of the level of ambition here, because of course, you know, 
one of the bits of activism that I'm actually most pleased with uh, that I've been like a small part of was precisely a campaign to, to save a swimming pool at a local leisure center. Um, I'm very happy that we pulled that off. But yeah, the whole thing is obviously privatized. It costs a bunch of money uh, to to get in there. I mean, there are like discounts and exemptions made for, for people with particular illnesses or of a certain age. But yeah, like we're so, so far away from, you know, workers controlled sports associations where that actually like embody um, our political values, like we're, we're ages away from, from that. So um, it's, but it's, uh, I guess what I would kind of like focus on in this situation is kind of indeed to think about like, what is it in the present that people are already doing that kind of prefigures a different way of doing things. And there sports is a, is not a bad place to start. Um, if we want to make an argument for um, kind of uh you know, a, a, a world in which voluntary association and mutual aid play a much larger role in, in our lives. Um, I think we could do worse than pointing to, to, to the kind of voluntary activities that go along with sports at the grassroots kind of level. Um, or, you know, I've uh, practiced uh, Kung Fu for a while in, in, a in the neighborhood that I live in and there indeed the, the the person kind of running the kung fu school was was uh, a very important figure particularly for the kind of younger people's classes and children's classes in fostering an inclusive culture you know um, people like kids 12 10 12 years old would come to him for advice if they were being bullied and what have you and uh, he would mediate discussions between between the kids and stuff as well. So there's all these kinds of activities that are actually going on all around us um, that that we can also support and get involved in, even if it's even if the ideal of something like an entirely collectively controlled uh, organization or association that embodies these values is very far away. Um, I, I guess we're coming to the end of the episode now, um, which is a shame because I think we could have talked. A lot longer about these these questions and about Doc's work more generally. Um, have you got anything like kind of final that you would like people to take away from from these texts? And and I guess I should say as well, the book we we've based this discussion on on is called Antifascism, Sports, Sobriety, Forging a Working Class Culture, by edited and translated by Gabriel Kuhn, uh, based on texts by interwar Austria Marxist Julius Deutsch. And you can get that from PM Press or the Internet Archive, or some various dodgy um, PDF sharing websites, which um, Libgen, for example, I think it's on as well. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I would really, really recommend um, the book. Also, anything else you can come across by Gabriel Kuhn. He's really a, a gem of a writer. He um, works very hard to, like, kind of, I guess, recover all these... Uh, these, these lost, uh, or lost, maybe not, but kind of these slightly more like obscure experiences um, and, uh, and uh, practices from, from our history as working people, not just in Central Europe, but around the world. Uh, he's also written a book called Football Against the State, uh, which touches on some, some similar themes, but through the prism of, of football. So I'd really recommend um, engaging with 
his work and everything on PM Press and AK Press and other independent publishers as well. Um, just on a final kind of note, I think um, this book actually has been quite significant for me. Uh, I picked it up a few years ago and it's really something that inspired me to start exercising uh, in a more systematic kind of way. Uh, to take an interest in it, but to take an active and critical interest in it as well. So to think carefully about how I do that, how I invite other people into it in in an emancipatory kind of way. Um, it's not that the text is like a straight, like we've touched a bit on some of the things that might be unfamiliar or weird or even troubling about the texts that are here, but the kind of very sincere commitment to uh, exercise and a happier life as a collective undertaking that can that can indeed mean different things for different people um, has been really valuable for me. As long as you show up on time for meetings, I think that's the part where I'm on board with Deutsch being quite absolute and categorical. We do need to get better at that. But I think reading between the lines here, there's a real vision for like um, an inclusive, accessible, but also quite militant and focused kind of culture of physical health that I think is really valuable and has, has meant a lot to me is um, uh, it raises some very important points around taking taking a bit of control of your life, um, being a little healthier, spending time with other people under different circumstances, on different terms. So we're not always just arguing about ideas, but we also get to push each other around a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'd say pick up the book and whatever level you're at, whatever level of physical health, whatever level of experience, whatever level of ability, uh, reach out um, and, and get, get involved. Thank you, everybody. Bye. It's going down and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down. You're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.